Thanks for downloading this podcast from Brum Radio. For more programs, search our podcast page at brumradio.com. And good morning, and welcome to the Brum Radio Book Show with me, Mike Gale. I've just realised, Mike, after all these years of doing this, that the uh, the theme tune is basically someone saying Michael, <laughs> yeah. Michael. Over yeah, and over I, again. I, was, I was about to mention that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered why you chose it. Now well, I know. <laughs> no, it's from our favourite band. Yeah, it's oh, right. one of our favourite bands. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, right, uh, this uh, this is your monthly look at all things bookish uh, in the world. Not just Birmingham. We we reach out there are as bits. far as we can. Um, please remember that it's an interactive show, so you can tweet us at, at brumradio underscore books or email us at bookclub at brumradio.com. So this month we have the book of the month. Mm, very and exciting. it is um, fantastic. We've got the usual um, it's the keeper of lost things mm-hmm. by Ruth Hogan, mm-hmm. whom uh, I have to uh, I have to do declare I do know her personally and she is lovely. I I have uh, the only experience I have had with her is reading the book and interviewing her, so I can say without any bias that she's lovely. Ah, that, that's good. Um, Hogan gets the, the double thumbs up. Uh, the Keeper of Lost Things is a, a novel about lost items that we can see around us: the single glove, the shopping list, the lost buttons, the long lost stories of lives that led them to that place. To celebrate that, we have a very special premiere today. Uh, the very first play anywhere of a story by Alison Jean Lester based on finding a student's essay. Mm. And because of this, we won't have a, a blog spot this month. Um, and we do normally have um, our special producing social media expert, Andrew. Andrew has been stuck on a train. He's not quite here at the moment. But So if you tweet us and there's a, a small delay to reply, do not be offended. Andrew is just uh, rushing to us. But uh, we also have our other fantastic guests here in the studio, uh, Mr. Stuart Bartholomew of Waterstones. Hello, Stuart. Hello, how are you? Um, you could get any nearer the microphone would be wonderful. Um, and, uh, of course... Uh, Miss Ms. Catherine O'Flynn. Hello, Blake. Hello, everyone. And Catherine will be reviewing our debut of the month, which is Brother by David Shariandi. Uh, which oh, you, you did that well. I did. Well, Catherine was holding the book up, so oh, right, okay. it made it easier for me. It was a last-minute panic there that I was going to get it. But um, I hear good things about this book. It is not uh, technically a debut, but it is the first time this book has been released in the United Kingdom. Uh, sorry, any of his books have been released in the United Kingdom. Oh, I see. And right, therefore, okay. we're calling that it's a, debut, a debut for us. So, um, we are we're ready to go. So yep. do tweet us at... Uh, books, uh, sorry, um, books underscore no, Brum Radio underscore books is our uh, Twitter uh, enabler thing, and uh, do feel free to tweet us. So now, tell us about your your. Well, I'm going to interrupt proceedings. Yeah, okay, I am going yeah. to interrupt proceedings and do this. Oops, Stuart's got one as well. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We oh, have just got the world's worst. <laughs> they got the world's most pathetic uh, party bottles. Or, um, oh, on. bless you! Hang on a minute. I've got a. Um, I've got a bottle of champagne. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I am absolutely moved. We are doing this to celebrate. It is a very, very auspicious day. Um, it is almost. But it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Mike Gale's book is released. And 
I always say this, but I believe it to be true. Any book that comes out is a small miracle. Um, oh, absolutely. Any book that anyone finishes is, quite frankly, an amazing achievement, regardless of whether it's good or not. But this one I have on good authority is also a good one as well. I mean, it's called uh, The Man I Think I Know. It is a gorgeous-looking book, if nothing else. They've done a fantastic Don't judge them the cover, by it, but yeah. it is a wonderful cover. Um, uh, and, um, and, yeah, released tomorrow. How are you feeling, Mike? I'm feeling absolutely fantastic um i'm very excited it, it's it feels very strange because you know um i'd finished it this time last year and uh i'd almost forgotten about it and now i'm having to talk about it again and remember things about it and uh we've we spoke, spoken about that but uh, yeah it's it's a weird feeling um before a book comes out because i always say this you know uh before a book comes out you really do think it's the best book in the world you know they, you know this is going to change novels forever and then it comes out and it's just like oh it's just another book well it's, it's all right the reviews i've read of it have been suggesting that it is your best book um it, it, that's insane and it, it's a nice thing to say but it, it's also <laughs> it's also, you know yes you want to be doing your own your best work but and you don't want your best work to have been in the past but equally you know they're all your babies it's just like you know you know this is your best child ever okay well you know i have had several others before uh, it's the newest um but yes no it, it, it's me trying to do something different and um i uh, but still be me and um hopefully I, I i pull it off it's got some nice um quotes um from people so yeah I'm, I'm chuffed with it and uh i've been doing lots of publicity as well for for that and yes you were on uh woman's hour this week yes i was on woman's hour and um <laughs> i had to be really really careful <laughs> because you know being here on brom radio i get to kind of talk a little bit more freely <laughs> um but as you know uh i'm i'm I do indirectly insult people, uh, and I don't intend to. Um, were there any poets on my? Uh, there weren't any poets, but there were women because it was Women's Hour, and I just kept thinking, "Don't Similar. say anything stupid. Don't say anything stupid. Don't say anything stupid," and uh, I didn't. It's good but to know that you don't have that restraint here um, on my radio. Well, yeah, yeah I quite happily say stupid things. The, the, the only thing is, I remember the last time I was on Women's Hour, I, I ended up talking about. <laughs> too ashamed to say it actually out loud. <laughs> I ended up talking about um, how it was just a joke you know how I got underwear in my drawer that you could yeah, that was so threadbare that you could read newsprint through and um, I just I, I could just see how that would just come up yeah um, and Jenny Murray just really did that she she always lowers her glasses anyway cause of, uh, but she just looked at me and it was just it, it terrified me <laughs> why am I talking please stop me don't put me on radio um, so yeah um, yes yeah it, it's been good and well, I haven't I haven't insulted any or burnt any bridges yet you so. can you, you've still got time on this show oh yes um, of course but as a second celebration I'm going to put um, uh, let the crowd in now oh, oh thank you very much um, well this um, is also for Stuart it's very kind because Stuart Bartholomew here uh, some of the <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go I got one I got one uh, um, Stuart is celebrating 
a publication uh, milestone as well, aren't you, Stuart, this week? Well, yeah, so uh, my new press, which Mike loves, uh, <laughs> is, but it's Birmingham, so it's got some no, good about it. No, I do love Birmingham. Uh, and uh, it's called Verve Poetry Press. We bring our first two collections out this week. Uh, one's Amira Saleh and one's Casey Bailey, both Brummies, um, and we're launching on Friday. And people <gasps> around the world would have um, would have seen Amira Saleh this week, wouldn't they? They would, because uh, I was so proud that she was on BBC Two and on many, many other channels all around the world um, as part of the uh, Commonwealth handover ceremony mm. and you know I, I was she was great but actually the whole thing was great and they did this amazing kind of dance on Victoria Square and and it was just uh, it made me feel proud to be here really mm. which uh, is a nice feeling fantastic and there is a launch of your books aren't they on Friday? there is so we're the both poets will be reading at the store on Friday seven o'clock um, and it should be a really good bash we expect to be very busy Fantastic. Do people need tickets for that, or do they just turn uh, up? It can or? turn up on the door. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so uh, sorry to have surprised you no, that, with that, that Mike, but we wanted to mark the celebration. Um, behind the chair there, there is uh, a cake in oh. celebration of, of both of your uh, achievements. And let us not forget, I said it before, but I'll say it again, any book that comes out there is is a, uh, a candle lit against the darkness of the world. Um, <laughs> that's incredibly pretentious, I know, but yeah, I truly believe that, so and uh, oh, I want no, to celebrate all you of your achievements. No, um, how, so there we go. How about your bookish month? How, how's that been? Um, largely been, you know, preparing a cake, um, buying the world's worst <laughs> uh, blowers. <laughs> Uh, and uh, it's not been a great success um, and uh, also uh, been involved in the Birmingham Literature Festival launch of Kit the Wall's book uh, oh, of the, course, the Tricks yes, of Time yeah. which was, was a um, it was a triumph I like to think it was a great event a lot of people there and a lot of fun we um, it's a it's a great book and it's a great um, uh, I was talking to to one of the guests there and they pointed out something which is it's quite brave to release a, a follow-up book that's so different yeah. to your your first one. I'm sure the publishers, the agents, everyone is saying, you know, basically do My Name is Leon again. Mm. She has done something very different and then done it well, which then means she's no longer a good debut writer. She's a good writer. Yeah. She's she's kind of you know been able to... So she can do anything now, I think. Her next book could be anything at all. And it's a really interesting. What she's done is she's she's creating a collection called... Uh, supporting ca characters or supporting cast and from her two novels um, she's creating short stories about each of the minor characters uh, and the background characters so people that she may have had you know some backstory that wasn't included in the novels uh, and she's cre uh, releasing a collection of stories about them which I think is quite interesting kind of b-sides if you like so what's, what's the, the, her next book that's yeah uh, well that. it's certainly in the works I don't know if it's actually her next oh, book right, okay. she's also working on a uh, compilation of working class writers uh, an anthology of working class writers as well so um, yeah it was a really good event I, I very much enjoyed it uh, we should we should also if you may have noticed in the background some sort of clickering and clackering noises it was because we've now been joined finally by Andrew oh Andrew guys I'm house. so sorry um, you've missed the opportunity to hit here have a have a blower we've been celebrating <laughs> oh you got some noise out of that one uh, and there's also some cake behind you so get that out um, but yes that's what I've been doing but we should um, uh, we should probably move on to talking about other things do we, we have to I know I know oh. apart from celebrating Mike's marvellous book 
Right, so uh, we're going to talk to Stuart next. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stuart, how are you? Well, we've done the how are you. So, yeah, um, still you're good. Still you've, good. You've got your poetry head, and you've also got your Stuart from Waterstones I head. I have, yeah. And uh, it's your Stuart split. from Waterstones head that we'd like to talk to now. Okay, thank you. Um, what's going on at Waterstones this well, month? Well, so I think... Uh, there are lots of events going on, but I wanted to talk about a couple of new releases that are coming up because they're very exciting and, some, and I don't think we always talk enough about new releases by big authors, yeah. apart from Mike Gale, uh, so, <laughs> which is important. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to talk about Claire North, who I think is a really exciting author. She's got a book coming out any minute called 84k she's the one who did the nine lives the, the thingy lives of somebody yeah she did she did she did and she's she's really quickly racking herself up a really good kind of stable of books if you call it that um every book she brings out seems to land really well she's building a really big following um she's in the kind of a dystopia stable I say a lot of her books are mm. um, and this one is in that similar kind of stable it's kind of slightly futuristic um, nothing's quite right um, there's, it's about it's kind of a crime dystopia thing and um, in it the uh, lead character has to judge people's misdemeanours um, against much kind of higher stakes than just prison um, things like punishments are a lot more interesting and definitely more kind of likely uh, but in different ways right. so you know it's just one of those books that just re- really quite imaginative and worrying that's right worrying I was going to make a really celebratory noise <laughs> <laughs> and then the other the other one I want to quickly mention because we haven't had a book from him for a long time is Michael Ondarchi mm. so he wrote English Patient of course which was a vast vast success and the film was amazing too um, he's not brought a book out for quite some time but he's bringing one out very early in June called Warlight um, and you know I think he's got a very uh, typical way of doing things it's very unusual, it's a very thoughtful way of writing, very kind of uh, misty kind of narratives he comes up with but you know, and he tends to set things around war situations and this is no different um, it's set in kind of backdrop to the second world war but you know, I just think he, everything he writes is, is glorious in some ways and um, really pleased to have him coming. Fantastic and I think Catherine's got, um, got an event as well um, yeah, sure. I, um, I think West Midlands writing, or writing West Midlands, as I believe they prefer to be called, are um, because that's what they are called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as a writer, I like to be a little bit more creative. I'm sorry. Like I'm that, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they're doing. Uh, they're running a few short courses in May and June, and uh, for example, June 9th is a one-day short course that I think is uh, is vital for everyone called Making a Living from Writing, and that's with Cat Weatherall. Is it possible? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's at the Birmingham Midland Institute. Um, I've got one. Um, the National Writers' Conference uh, is taking place at uh, Bramall, the Bramall Music Building, University of, Ed- uh, University of Birmingham. That's done on the 30th of June. And uh, I think I, I've, I've been before, and I think Stuart's going to be involved in this one as well. Is that right? Yeah, I am. I'm doing something on how to run a press, which I'm not sure I know yet. But yeah, <laughs> you're learning on the job. <laughs> You've done it. <laughs> Exciting. Um, but yeah, that I mean, it's, it's uh, the early bird tickets are fifty pounds or forty five pounds for concessions. But I mean, if you're 
interested in being a writer or being involved in the world of, of literature, it's definitely something you should uh, look out of. Um, I only wanted to just emphasise to everyone to look at the Birmingham Literature Festival, um, which is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, A fantastic weekend. Um, Satnam Sangera has has got a really interesting um, uh, sort of uh, roster this year. This is like the mini festival, if you like. The the, the festival later on in the year is a kind of bigger one, but there's some great stuff. Jenny Murray, who's um, Mike is scared of, um, will be there. Uh, Because she has a book about uh, history of women, uh, history of Britain in women, uh, which I think will be very interesting. So yes, get on the show. And of course, um, uh, Kit DeWall and Alexi Sale are also doing an event about sort of protest writing as well, which I think will be very interesting. So yes, do look at the uh, writing West Midlands or West Midlands writing or you know (laughs) whatever you want to call it, the flimple flample groups. And, uh, and and find out what they're up to. Um, so, yes, that's what I would suggest. So, uh, you're listening to the Brum Radio Book Show, uh, and, of course, every month we have a book of the month, and this book, book of the month this month is The Keeper of Lost Things mm. by Ruth Hogan. Um, and I've, it's, it's already been a, a massive, huge bestseller. Yes, uh, it is out on paperback. Her follow-up is coming out quite soon. Yes, the Wisdom of Sally Red Shoes. Yeah. Um, but um, we're talking about this because it's easier for people to get hold of at the moment. And the paperback version is available. And uh, yes, it's a really um, interesting book. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, once we've done the interview, I want to talk a little bit about this whole concept of uplit yeah. Now, this is something I'd never heard of. Mike told me about, which is a kind of, I'm sure it's obviously a marketing thing, talking about literature that is uplifting, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I think it's, it's less of a, you know, I think it's <laughs> these books exist and then people have grouped them together. And uh, there was a Guardian article um, not so long ago that, that kind of branded them uplit. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting phenomenon to have people looking for books to make them feel be- better, a little bit better about life. Because in, in mean, a minute, you know, you've only, you've only got to watch the news for like half a second and, you know, it's the world's a pretty depressing place. Um, I have to admit, when I when I approached this, that very that very thing, I think it sort of I'd got my I'd got my back up slightly in the sense of, and I, I'm not blaming writers for this at all. But when someone tells me how I'm supposed to feel about a book, my right, first reaction yeah. is, I'll be the judge of that. You know, when a book <laughs> says this will terrify you or it will make your heart break, I'm like, no, I will decide. Um, so this book is about um, it's about a well, it's it's about a lot of things actually. It's a story about um, a, a man who collects lost items he picks up the odd uh, glove he picks up a a jigsaw piece and takes it home not in a kind of um, extreme hoarding sort of stuff in the houseway but in a way of trying to find a way to um, get these things back to people isn't that bagpuss it's very much bagpuss for the 21st (laughs) century bagpuss the novel (laughs) yeah um so yes, though, though we don't need to do any more discussion. We pretty much you pretty much know what it is. Um, but um, it's a really, I say, it's a really interesting way because what's what this book does so brilliantly um, is all of these stories. Of course, every little thing in life represents someone's life, and someone's life can be eighty years of of tragedy or love or something else. And throughout this book. When the characters pick up these items, we just were treated to these little snapshots, these little short stories, some of which are a few pages, some of which are just a couple of paragraphs, um, about how that item came to be 
where it was so is it someone on the way to a job interview is it someone who's leaving a lover is it someone who's had an argument with their sibling uh, and and that's left it there uh, and so we're just all the way through the book we just have these beautiful little short stories that constantly remind us you know there's a lot going on uh, in people's lives um so we were very lucky to to get to interview Ruth about the book um which I did uh, over the phone um so um let's play it now shall we yep it is a wonderful device to show to show how absolutely everyone has a story to tell and there is there is a history behind everything that we see that idea um of of using these these lost items to tell the story did that come before the characters no it didn't but it, it well it sort of all came together because one of the things that had fascinated me and and I know it's something that I'm guilty of myself is the emotional investment that we make in inanimate objects and we bestow on them a value much greater than their intrinsic value because they hold a memory for us or because they were given to us by somebody special or they evoke a certain time in our lives and and that's always fascinated me this idea that every object is worth more than its material value um and, and every object has a story to tell. But as a writer, it's a wonderful... It, I always describe it as it, it's, it's like a chocolate box because I could pick any object and then write a short story about it, uh, which is a wonderful thing to be able to do. It's interesting to hear you talk about those short stories. I'd say one of, my, one of the highlights of the novel for me are these, these vignettes, these little short stories that we hear behind some of the lost things. Mm-hmm. I could read a whole a whole book of those. Do, did they start life outside the novel, or were they always written for the book? Only one of them did. One of them started out a long time ago. Um, I entered a short story competition, didn't win, didn't get shortlisted. But one of those stories, yes, that started life separately. And a couple of them are based on stories that friends have told me of things that actually happened. And I, I kind of, I was so impressed with them that I wove them into the the overall novel but another question i often get asked is did i write them in the order that they appear in the book or did i write them separately and then just slot them in um and apart from the one that i just mentioned the one that i had written before i actually wrote them all in order as they came along in the story i take it you wouldn't describe yourself as an extreme hoarder i wouldn't (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't, but no, I'm not an extreme hoarder, but I've always been a magpie and I, I collect things. And it was interesting because somebody came to my house the other day and they said, you don't only collect things, but you arrange them in a very particular way. And I think I do. Um, so I, I'm always gathering in things. And when I write, I do the same thing. For example, when I was writing Keeper, I started bringing home all the lost things that I found, much to my husband's horror. Um, and I, I Instagrammed them all. I photographed all the lost things that I found and, and and placed them on Instagram, which a lot of people have kind of joined in with and followed um, when they've read the book. So it's been a really interesting process for me And because when I've been writing the book, I have actually surrounded myself with things that other people lost. And I believe actually some of those are actually on the cover. They are, yes, and that was that was a wonderful thing to be able to do. Some of the things that I found actually ended up on the cover, and then when we launched the book, 
we launched it in a local bookshop because I have a friend who runs an antiquarian bookshop in Bedford and he very kindly let me launch the book from there and we we put all the lost things that I had found in the window for the window display for the launch of the book and my dream was that one person would come forward and claim one of the lost objects and a little girl actually came forward and claimed a glove and she'd lost um, a glove with a panda face on it and I think she'd only had them a few days and she lost one and I found it put it in the window and she came and claimed it fantastic so one one down about 500 and god knows how many more things to go <laughs> that was the first part of our interview with Ruth Hogan the author of this month's book of the month The Keeper of the Lost Things that sounds fantastic. Mm. It is like a really, really good read. It is. It's. Um, I tell you what. It, it's what I like about this book is is partly this fact that it, it has these beautiful short stories in it, but there's also it's also one of these books where straight away from from the first page you think I'm in good hands here. This is someone who can write. Now I'm just going to give you an example of that because there's a couple of, of phrases right up front I loved about when she goes. So the central character, well, one of the central characters, is, is an old gentleman called Anthony Pardew. Pardew is a writer, and he lives in this, this house that he's lived in with all these items for a long time. And it's described as um, the house was untainted by the tinnitus of technology, which I really liked. And then straight on, uh, a bit later on, we're introduced to the other main character, Laura, in the book, and she is kept afloat but barely by an unhappy combination of Prozac, Prino Grigio and pretending things weren't happening um, and, and as soon as I read those I thought oh yeah this is someone who's who can write and has got as, as some you know some wit um, and really evoked things I love that idea of the tinnitus of technology yeah. uh, of your house it really you know exactly what you mean as soon as you read that and 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 yeah I really enjoyed reading it and I think this whole and thing were you was I uplifted um, well what I'm saying about this is, yes, um, but of course this book is not, this is not sweetness and light all the way through. This is a, this is a book about loss. Um, there's essentially two stories. There is the story of Laura as she sorts her life out and also addresses all these lost items. And then there's a parallel story uh, that's set over a lifetime, which is a relationship between a woman and uh, a gay man who, so they have this kind of platonic lifelong love um, and um, we hear these two stories in complete isolation and then they dovetail at certain points and um, and you know and it's it's heartbreaking you know this these are stories of unrequited love loss loneliness uh, misery you know um, and obviously you've got to have that if you're going to be uplifted at the end by seeing people redeem it so it's not uh, it's not a book that I was expecting this kind of uplifting I was expecting a kind of relentless barrage of, of fluff and not fluff but of, of sweetness and light and actually I got a, a nuanced story of a real person overcoming tragedy and having a second chance at life. So. And I think that, that's the uplifting part. Exactly, of it, exactly, and it's you know it's great. So yeah, I really I really enjoyed it, um, and it's not as I say it's not the sort of thing I would normally read. I think, or I think I would have been p turned off by that whole uplift thing, yeah, yeah. Um, which is just a prejudice, obviously. In my opinion, it's yeah. good. It's good that I learned that. <laughs> Right, um, so we've got some more. We've got uh, another second part of the interview. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, we're going to hear a little bit more from Ruth Hogan talk about her novel, The Keeper of Lost Things. So we think we know what's going on with this book. Something changes. I've heard you described it as, as a love story and a ghost story. Um, it's, it's lots of different things. Were you conscious about 
wanting to avoid a pigeonhole for this, or is that just a nature of the story? Um, I, I, there's, there seems to be an awful lot of concern these days about what genre you're writing in, and mm. everyone's talking about different genres. And I never started this story from that standpoint. I always just wanted to write the story that I had to tell. And then I was quite happy for someone else to say, well, it's this or it's that or it's the other. But I never set out to write a particular genre. I just had this story in my head and that's how it evolved. So, and, and it was a bit like, I describe it as a bit like juggling plates because I had the two strands of narrative to juggle and then I had the short stories as well. Uh, so at times I had to sort of write lots of post-it notes out to myself just to make sure that I was everything was fitting in together nicely because it did get quite complicated some of the time that's another thing i was going to ask about there's it's almost like two novels that that run in parallel and then interweave it's quite interesting and as you say it must have been quite um a technical achievement as well were you nervous about approaching it that way i was nervous because the problem was i had the beginning and i had the end i knew what i wanted to happen at the end what I didn't have was the journey, mm. and it, it 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 really evolved. I'm not a great one for sitting down and and planning plots. You know, some writers sit down and they do all these wonderful charts and organise themselves so that they know chapter by chapter where they're going. I'm much more a fly by the seat of my pants type of person. So I knew where I needed to get to, and there were times when I thought, I'm not sure if I'm how the hell am I going to get to that point. But luckily I did. But yeah, it, and also I think it makes it more interesting sometimes though you, if you push yourself in that way and say, well, look, this is where we're trying to go. So think of something. You're supposed to be creative. Think of how we get there. It's interesting to hear you talk about the process of writing it there because I understand it came at quite a difficult personal time for you. Yes, yeah. What, but, what was it that, well, would you like to tell us a little bit about that and why it was that, that you decided this was the solution? Um, I was having chemo uh, for breast cancer at the time and um, it kept me awake at night and I was really, you feel exhausted, well I did, I can only speak for the way I felt, Um, I felt exhausted but I just couldn't sleep so I needed something to distract me and I'd been writing other things before um, but this gave me a chance to focus and so instead of trying to sleep I took myself off to the spare room with a flask of mint tea and all my research books and all my notebooks and I wrote through the night and it was wonderful because it actually gave me a massive distru- um, distraction because I think one of the problems is if you do have an illness like cancer it, the, the thing that I wanted to avoid was just becoming that person with cancer because everyone sees you and, and that's all they think about is your illness and I didn't want to be that person I wanted to be Ruth who happened to have cancer, but was actually getting on with something else. Mm. Um, and so it, it just shifted the focus away from the illness for me, and it also gave me a wonderful distraction to to not think about how I was feeling, but to actually just get on with what I was doing. The, the, the book's very interesting, again, in the way it's often described as, you know, uplifting and um, redemptive, which it is. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of sadness in here as well. There's a lot of, of tragedy and loss. Mm. Nothing comes easily to these characters. Um, do you think that was influenced by the, the, the what was going on at the time when you wrote it? I think it partly was. 
Um, and, and also the fact that I've always wanted to write in terms of light and shade because that's what life's like. And, and it's fiction, of course it's fiction. But in order for people to relate to it, it has to be believable in some sense. And, and life's like that. And one of the things that the illness taught me is, is you appreciate life much more when you realise how precious it is. And that sounds like a cliche, but it really isn't. It's, it's like bright colours show up much more against the dark, dark background. And that's how I view it, that the joyful things and the wonderful things that happen in your life, you appreciate them much more if you've been through pain and sadness mm. and, and you acknowledge that life is finite. You're only here for so long, so make the most of it. Ah. <laughs> I'm going to give up with this. Sorry, everybody. That's Blake and his blower. Um, and that was also uh, Ruth Hogan, um, our, our author of this month's Book of the Month, uh, The Keeper of Lost Things. Before we talk a little bit about, about the book, I'm going to reintroduce Catherine O'Flynn. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Thank you. That was quite <laughs> emphatic. Wasn't it? Good. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, Ruth, there was. Uh, um, I mean, it's interesting there uh, the Ruth's book doesn't seem to fit into any particular genre. I mean, how did you find that for your own work? Yeah, I think um, I think it can be a good and a bad thing, can't it? It, yeah. it, it? I guess it was a bad thing in terms of actually initially getting published because publishers... Um, Where like, can we pigeonhole you? Yeah, yeah, if not even some sort of big recognised genre, some genre that they themselves have got in their heads. So that, that could be an issue. Um, but then obviously it's... I suppose it's it's... You know, when you're writing, you're not really thinking about those things, are you? No. So it's um, it's pretty constraining. I mean, I'm kind of a little bit. Um, it's strange the whole idea of genre, th- isn't it? Because when people say, "Oh, I don't write in any genre," I think it's a bit like when people say, "I don't have any accent." It's like, well, you do mm, have an yeah. accent. It's I don't just, have any influences. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I think so. It can be a little bit of snobbery in there, can't mm. it? So I don't want to. Yeah, what I'm saying is, I'm trying not to say, "Oh, I don't have a genre," because I'm pretty sure I do have a genre it's just it's kind of less you know it's more obscure not a Birmingham accent or whatever I wonder if it's also debuts are in a sense easier to to kind of get rid of that because you are completely not aware of all of this stuff about marketing Mm. and how it's going to be sold and how what who it's going to be read by so again in this in Ruth Hogan's book here you know we start off it's a romance there's a ghost story element to it there's kind of slightly fantastical stuff it's also could be regarded as short stories in amongst it um I wonder if you know there is a freedom of of in that first time you could just go I'll just write anything well well, there might even if there is it's you know usually the, the people putting you into a genre aren't the author it, oh, of it, it, yeah. it'll be the marketing department Absolutely, because yeah. it's how do you sell something how do you mm. how do you sell somebody how do you sell something to somebody who has never heard of you who doesn't know what you do yeah. you just want to say it's a bit like this yeah. Yeah. that that's all you're doing that, that you know and it's you can see you know there's so many books thousands of books published every week You've got to think. Well, how do I make this? How do I make a connection with the reader who doesn't know anything about them? But Mike, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about you because you, you've got a book coming. This is what your fifteenth novel, something like this. This is true. Um, do you feel there's any pressure on you from the audience? Do you feel like you've got people that read you and expect a certain thing? Do you feel like you you need to not surprise them or not alienate them when you write? Um, I am. I suppose I am more conscious of it. Um, than perhaps you would be with it with a with a debut, mm. but I'm always a little bit. I'm always a little bit. Uh, I want to use a musical analogy. Um, 
it's a little bit like you know that first Arctic Monkeys album was brilliant and then that second album was just like yeah we're a different Arctic Monkeys and I just feel like and it, Radiohead you know first album not very good <laughs> second album brilliant and then third album oh we want to be the Aphex Twin and I'm just like <laughs> I just want I think you have to I think the audience yes an audience wants a bit more of the same but you have to grow it slowly mm. and you have to say I'm going here and I'm going there but I think to cynically go I'm going to be really populist and then I go actually now that I've got my house in the country paid for <laughs> I, I'm going to be really cool it's just a little bit you know I don't like it I don't like it so um, does that answer your question it, it does <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I, I'm just uh, it's, it's a, I think like I say in relation to this book I think it's quite a brave thing I yes, think yeah. and to I sit think there and go I'll just write and, it, and the story will take me in odd directions and, and this is the thing this is what I like about it and this is why there's, a, there's an honesty to Ruth's book is that she's brave straight out of the get go this is her daily book this is her saying this is who I am mm. and it's not a particularly safe book and yet it's done really well and it's proved itself and it means that she can do all these wonderful things next mm. and you know who knows where she'll go with it it's interesting one of the things that she said that she was inspired by was reading an article about human rem- what happens to human remains when they're left behind at the um, crematorium and the opening sequence of this book is so arresting because it is about somebody just it's talking about someone's travelling on a train and then we realise that it's actually, he's actually ashes in a biscuit tin and it's his mortal remains and, just, and, 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 it, and it brawls you straight in it's a really arresting opening to this book so yeah I'm really really pleased that it's been the success that it has Right so we've got uh, our next part of the, our interview with Ruth Hogan uh, the author of The Keeper of Lost Things which is our book of the month this month please remember to uh, you, you can tweet us at at Radio underscore books or email us at bookclub at brumradio.com and just to let you know some background this part of the interview uh, we talked to, to Ruth about how successful her first book had been and what it feels like and what it's like to suddenly have a huge success like that on your hands how has that how has that kind of explosion of, of audience affected your writing I mean did, when you approach the follow up <laughs> did you approach it differently um, it's quite scary mm. because you, you, you feel like oh god I've peaked that's it now um, how do I follow it but I always go back to the premise that I started writing on is that I write about what I love and so it's that's not going to change and I think I just have to focus on writing for the joy of writing uh, which is what I've always done and also I'm I'm quite reclusive when I'm writing so it's easy for me to shut all of that off and just go back into my own little world and just become Ruth the writer rather than all the other stuff um, and, and if I do get scared then I think about all the encouragement that I've had from so many people and all the support and that pushes me on You know, just from readers saying we can't wait to read the next book yes that's pressure but also it's support it's people who have loved what you've written and are saying please write more did you start writing the follow-up before lost things was released um i had yeah i had started work on it and and i'd actually finished my first version of it before keeper kind of exploded because there was a point where it went 
seemed to go completely mad. So I'm quite pleased that I'd finished my sort of first version of it before that happened. Can you tell us a little about the, the next book? It's called um, The Wisdom of Sally Redshoes. And again, I, I would describe it as being a, a very redemptive book. But it's also got that darkened shade. And some people have described it as being a little bit darker than Keeper. Um, and it is in parts, I suppose. But it's, it's about a woman who has suffered uh, an incredible loss and she's stuck grieving. And she can't find a way forward until she meets two older ladies who have each suffered some terrible tragedy in their lives but have found a way not only to carry on living but to thrive and have amazing and wonderful lives and she she learns from these two women and they teach her to live her life again but it's also a dual narrative so there's another story running in parallel with the story of Masha who's my main character and this involves her past. And and the way that it's described on the book cover, which I didn't write but I absolutely love, is it says, just as Masha's learning to dream about a future, the past comes crashing back. So without any spoilers, that's kind of what it's about. And uh, when's that released? It's actually released on the 3rd of May. Okay. So just under three weeks' time. And I'm sure you'll be out and promoting it. What does it feel like talking about your writing to, to people like me? Initially, it was very strange. It, I, was, I, was, I don't know whether it's a generational thing, but I was kind of brought up in a very British, you don't blow your own trumpet kind of way. So it feels a bit like boasting. Um, so I'm, I'm much more comfortable talking about the process of writing and where I get my ideas from and stuff. But when people say to me, oh, how do you feel about it being a huge success? Then I get really, oh, I don't really know. I don't want to talk about it. Um, but it, it's great for me because I love writing and it's very easy to talk about the things that you love. Um, and, and I'm always surprised by the kind of questions I get asked because you get asked lots of the same sort of questions and then suddenly someone will ask you something that you've never been asked before and that's that's great and it keeps me on my toes <laughs> lots of laughter oh, at Blake here sorry that was the last part of our uh, interview with uh, Ruth Hogan author of The Keeper of the Lost Things uh, the author of this month's book of the month Andrew, um, how, are, how are things? What are people saying about stuff on the interwebs? Okay, guys. Well, we had a lovely tweet from uh, the Tamworth Book Club at Tamworth Reads on uh, Twitter saying, yep, yeah, listening in, great show already. And I just replied saying, we'll endeavour to keep up the quality, so no pressure. I love that already. It feels like normally it takes half an hour. Yeah, they're halfway were, through before you really interesting. Apparently, we were only three minutes in, so, you know. <laughs> Listen to last month. Um, aside from that, we just had a lovely retweet from Ruth, our interviewee for the book of the month this oh, week. Um, we hope you're great. listening, Ruth. We are very f- much fans of the book here. So yeah. Aside from that, lots of lots of great things about the Verve Poetry Festival as well. Oh, is that Stuart's place? Stuart's got a, a Russian <laughs> troll farm. Trying <laughs> 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 to shoot home poetry into a, into a fiction book. <laughs>
just returning finally to um, the Keeper of Lost Things, um, Blake, any, any final thing? Um, I would say um, it, was a, it was a salutary lesson for me in um, not, um, not prejudging um, in terms of, you know, I don't. I, I keep saying this as if I was reading it. I was expecting it to be bad or something, which I wasn't. I just. I think it, I'd heard all this stuff about it being uplifting, and like I say, I think I'd got this kind of like I'll decide whether I will be uplifted, and I was. I felt at the end, I felt that the characters had, you know, had gone on a journey that felt true, um, and they'd suffered in ways that felt real, um, and that the the romances were so. I mean, especially the. That there's a story of kind of a romance that takes place over, I say, a lifetime. I find that incredibly tender, really, really beautiful. And I, and I think my favourite part was 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 the way that that actually kind of joined up as well with the with the um, the kind of the main narrative uh, at the end. It was lovely. So that's the the Keeper of Lost Things by Ruth Hogan. Um, this month's book of the month uh, gets a, two of Blake's very big thumbs up. Um, <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> big big thumbs. <laughs> Oh, just look at your hands. Um, you know, he's got big hands and big thumbs. I don't know. You have a man's hand. Um, <laughs> okay, a man's which, hand. Which one? I think, yeah. I, I, that's one lady. I have piano playing fingers, apparently. Um, anyway, we're getting off the point. Um, it's available now uh, on, in paperback. That's right. And, uh, and um, the wisdom of Sally Red Shoes is coming in May, I believe. So if you like that, then get the follow-up as well. Now, of course, we, we, we said earlier uh, at the top of the show that um, we haven't got a, a blog this month, but mm-hmm. instead we have got um, we've got a short story. This is very exciting. This is a piece of absolute uh, exclusive content. We have worked with a novelist to record a short story that um, has been um, made just for Brum Radio, uh, and we're very, very proud of it. Um, and we've also managed to have Ruth Hogan introduce it. So shall we go straight in? Over to Ruth. The Keeper of Lost Things is a book about the stories behind the objects that other people lose. And this is a story called Message for George by Alison Jean Lester. And it's a story about someone's lost thing. This is Wordplay. Local voices local writing a message for George whose essay on pride and prejudice I found in the grass from Alison Jean Lester this is a message for George H of Droitwich Spa Worcestershire I found your English essay in the grass near the corner of St. Nicholas Street and Stalls Farm Road crumpled not in a ball but more as if you had rolled it and twisted it It had opened itself out again a bit and had been spattered by tar during recent roadworks. The paper is sticky. It's not so much an essay in the modern sense as it is in the old, because you've merely answered two questions, question three and question four. Well, you've tried. An essay is an attempt. It's from the French, George. It's also an assault. There's a good deal of red pen from teacher, and I won't duplicate her efforts. I'm deriving her gender from her handwriting. Speaking of which, your handwriting is beautiful. Your S's practically the F-shaped characters of antiquity. Lovely. She doesn't mention your penmanship on this paper. Has she elsewhere? I hope so. 
What I am here to do is to fill in the huge gaps she left. What's a boy to do with gaps that big? I mean, really. If a sentence is crystal clear to you, how is her simply writing vague, uncapitalized, I note, supposed to improve your future assaults? Let's have a look at question three. I gather from what you've written, you were asked to write about how Jane Austen goes about portraying Elizabeth Bennet's embarrassment. Or perhaps you were asked to choose a feeling yourself. If so, bravo, excellent choice. And not surprising, given how embarrassing it must be to be asked to read that book at your age. Or ever. Don't be bamboozled, George. Not everyone loves it. You begin your answer to question three this way. The writer starts with very broken-up sentences to portray her feelings of embarrassment. This clearly shows her feelings because the pauses show she's waiting and carefully choosing her words. Teacher says you need to be more technical than this, but I can see what you did there. All technical terms fail us when we're embarrassed, don't they? You're writing in an embarrassed way to underline your point. Genius. Moving on, second para. As well as this, the writer shows her embarrassment through how she talks to Mr. Darcy. She said, thank you again and again. This shows she was nervous or embarrassed because this isn't how someone talks to someone they're comfortable talking with. It is here that teacher writes vague and what do you mean? What could be clearer than what you've laid out though? I'll tell you what, George, I think you just need to change up the vocab. Change talking to communicating sometimes someone to a person. See what happens. In addition to this, you continue, her embarrassment is further shown through how Elizabeth starts talking to Mr. Darcy, saying, I am a very selfish creature. Okay, I have to interrupt you here because teacher didn't. First, the writer does not show her embarrassment. She shows Elizabeth's. Also, Mr. Darcy, why the inverted commas? Were you distracted by some texting? Focus, George, little things like that are huge in the real world. This shows her embarrassment because she's needs apostrophe, not the first time, not funny, almost dehumanizing herself because of how embarrassed she is to talk. There's a red arrow from teacher pointing from dehumanizing and asking how, which bit. What exactly about dehumanizing herself by calling herself a creature doesn't teacher get? Hold tight, George. Be strong. That bit's as obvious as it needs to be. I have to agree with red arrow number two, though, indicating the end of the sentence is not analytical. What we're dealing with here is a tautology, from the Greek meaning needless repetition in the same words. It's starting to feel as if you're saying we know she's embarrassed because she's embarrassed. I know you're not, but you sound like you are. Maybe you've taken your own embarrassment a mite far? Have a think about that. Question four is where things get beyond me. You write, the writer successfully shows it's difficult to express your feelings through the way Elizabeth starts talking, trying to tell Mr. Darcy something. This is effective because she dehumanizes herself, calling herself a creature. For this, you get a tick and a note at the bottom of the page. Good start, just needed more. It's not a good start, George, and you mustn't believe it is. If the answer to question four is supposed to be a summary of question three, then start again. Your answer shows neither the clarity nor the cunning of question three. It is neither precise nor poetic. So what am I missing? Why has teacher let you write this garbage now when she criticized you for something much tidier just a few lines before?
had to think about this for a long time. And then I wasn't thinking anymore. And I had it. Teacher wasn't thinking either. She'd given you a tick and called those two sentences good because they are so poignant. It is difficult to express your feelings. Poignant is from the French, George, originally meaning pricking, stinging. You prick us with this sentence. You, young George, adolescent essay twister, can say it with complete authority. You prick us, and we are stung. was Alison Jane Lester, who is, of course is uh, the author of Yuki Means Happiness, or Yuki Means Happiness, Yuki? I say Yuki. Yuki yeah. Means Happiness, um, which Catherine reviewed um, uh, a few shows ago. Um, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? We have a whole range more of those. We've got a, we've been working with a number of local writers, um, and we're going to release those uh, all together as a podcast as well. So you will have the opportunity to to hear that again. But it's it's great. Really enjoyed it. Right. So uh, we're going to move over to uh, this month's debut. Mm. We've got Catherine in the house. Hi. Yes. And, uh, her, this one's debut is? Uh, it's called Brother and it's by David Chariandi, a Canadian writer. Um, as Blake mentioned, uh, Catherine, um, just uh, so you know, your microphone is very sensitive, so if you can keep it still, that would uh, be Stop great. whacking it around yes, with sorry. the book <laughs> as I speak. Anyone anyone wow. sitting at home with headphones, apologies for that. Carry well, on. Sorry, everyone, for my lack of professionalism there. Um, yeah, so as Blake mentioned earlier, um, it's not his. David Cheriandi's debut. His debut was 10 years ago, published in Canada. But inexplicably, despite the fact that it won pretty much every prize in Canadian literature or was nominated for it, wasn't published here. I've no idea why. Um, so anyway, this is his follow-up, a good long gap between them, which I always like. Um, <laughs> I feel quite sympathetic to that. Um, is, that a, is that a dig at Mike? Uh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. Um, and I have to say, this um, was... A brilliant book, absolutely um, couldn't recommend it highly enough. I think everyone should go out and read it right now. Um, so this story is, about, as the title suggests, brothers, um, Francis and Michael, who um, are growing up in um, a place called Scarborough on the outskirts of Toronto. Um, and their mother is um, has uh, migrated to Canada years ago from Trinidad. And uh, they live in a fairly sort of um, deprived kind of uh, estate called the park. And the novel sort of moves between, um, I'd say like early 90s, it's not really clear when it is, but I say early 90s is the more contemporary part of the novel and then back 10 years previously to sometime in the early 80s um, when Francis was still alive, the older brother. So it's a novel about loss. In the in the 90s, Francis has died and it's um, Michael living with his mother and how their sort of how their lives are day to day and then we get this back and forth between when Francis was... So you know from the start that Francis um, dies and the book sort of just opens up what happens and it's I'd say that what's so great about this book is I mean obviously it's uh it fits in with the times very well you know there's the whole um importance of things like the Black Lives Matter movement and in the time of Trump and everything any book that deals with um sort of 
issues of of race is is like just seems so important at the moment but i would say even more than that this book is just um beautifully written he's one of those writers that's got an incredibly light but devastating touch and um he writes particularly well about poverty about the mother's endless work and you know the physical toll of her just constantly getting buses around the city trying to get cleaning work and he writes incredibly well about exclusion the way that these two young boys are really uh feared and unwanted wherever they go by virtue of the way they look um so yeah i think i mean i just i loved i love his writing it's quite a short book you know sometimes you go through a phase where you read <coughs> lots of books that feel they're fine you read them you think yeah that was accomplished and it's they're good but you kind of can't get away from the fact that they feel like they were books that were written to be books do you know what i mean that, yeah. that sort of slightly contrived i'm writing here's an idea for a book and I'm whereas this reminds you of books that are just written and they are beautiful and um i don't know just seems a kind of a, a thing that was naturally born into this world you know there's something so um yeah i, re- I really loved it and uh, i'm really glad to have had the chance to read it well, that, that, that is a, a glowing endorsement. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so, uh, once again, it's called Brother. Brother, it's David, David Cheriandi. It's published by Bloomsbury. And, you know, I should say that that made it possibly sound all... Um, you know, it is this very elegiac in tone. It is, it is a sombre book, but it's, it's not also... It's not we're saying. It's not uplit, but at the same time, there's a beautiful wryness to it. Um, there was one bit I was going to just read, just one line that made me smile, where um, he's talking about... Um, Francis and I had lived together in the same room all our lives, but there had recently been a series of disheartening intimacies. <laughs> the occasion when Francis came home with new friends and they caught me before the television imitating and dancing in Lionel Richie's all night long. I just love the idea of disheartening intimacies. It's beautiful. That sounds fantastic. It's interesting what you say about you know books doing well in their home country yeah, and then just not getting picked up anywhere else and it feels like there's there's a gap in the market there somewhere for some literature lovers to band together maybe with a poet and um put, put their own press together uh putting out books that haven't you yeah. know reached the uk yet well there is there is a publisher um who who um whose name now i think it's called and other stories um oh yes and they do a lot of that and there's a lot of i think they have a lot of of central american literature um and a lot of translated stuff and um i've really enjoyed all the stuff they've been producing again quite sort of indie quite small publications that probably would never have got a publisher otherwise but i'd recommend having a look at those excellent thank you very much for that catherine um, it looks like we're nearly at the end of the show. We really nearly are. Uh, so, um, what is everybody reading? Uh, should we start with you, Glenn? Um, well, I have been. I've been. Um, I don't know if anyone of you here have any read any work by Philip Kerr. He's a um, very prolific writer, uh, and he died a couple of weeks ago. I didn't know. That. Um, and um, yes, he was quite young. I think well, it was early sixties, and um, he he writes a lot of books set in Germany of the nineteen thirties. 40s, 50s. Um, so I've been reading some of those, and then as a result of that, I have picked up the shortest history of Germany uh, by James Hawes, and it is absolutely fantastic. It's a non-fiction book, but it is literally an incredibly short history of Germany from 
kind of um, Roman times to the present day. Um, and it's, it's absolutely captivating. So it's been a, a real kind of, I realised you just didn't know anything about Germany. So I've been quite enjoying immersing myself in all things Teutonic. <laughs> I've got uh, a little bit of a James Hall story. Um, I used to read James Hall stuff. Because he's a novelist, fiction, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, in the sort of early 90s before I got uh, published. And I remember um, going to a reading of uh, White, Work, White his debut, White, White Merc with Fins. And he was doing this reading at um, Books Etc. on Charing Cross Road. And because I desperately wanted to be a, a writer, I, I was going to all these sorts of things. And I thought, well, I read the book. And I just thought, and I, you know, I quite enjoyed the book. And in fact, I really enjoyed the book. It was very sort of post, you know, sort of pulp fiction, written by dogs sort mm. of thing that everybody was writing. It was a kind of Brit pop, the, the novel. It, yes, pop, yeah. yeah. Um, but there was a bit <laughs> to me. Was was just lifted straight out of. Um, and I, I don't. I'm not accusing him of this at all. But I, you know. you got the lawyers on speed dial, right? <laughs> yeah. um, Absolutely. I felt at the time. I just thought it, it was very similar to uh, the Italian job. I thought. I just thought it. Oh, I'm sure he'll quite like me to point this out to him. In, in <laughs> and so I was like, uh, I've got a question. Yeah, the ending. That's straight out of the Italian job. And he went, uh, all flustered. I've never seen the Italian job. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, anyway, if you listen to this, uh, James, um, I apologise. What a dreadful person I was. <laughs> and what a dreadful thing to do to uh, uh, an author. But I desperately wanted to be you. So um, that's my story. Uh, Andrew, what are you reading? Uh, Andrew's reading about a million. Oh mate, the, the the pile of books by my bed is just getting ridiculous. I've had to start. A, I've had to start a new pile. Yeah, the, the holiday didn't help. It just made it worse. What, what did you finish? What was the last one? You finished? Oh, the last thing I finished was. Um, oh, it's a graphic novel uh, that a friend lent me called God Hates Astronauts, which was highly entertaining, very pure, or very silly. But it was a short read, so I finished that. I'm rereading Bob Stanley's Yeah 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 History yeah, of Modern Pop, like. which I absolutely adore. I first read it about two and a half years ago, and I just started listening to one of the Spotify playlists again recently, yeah. and it just made me want to read the book again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been reading mainly non-fiction. I've been reading a lot about sort of heathlands. I'm working on a project about heathlands and libraries in Birmingham, and so I've been reading a lot about as the you as you do, reading a lot about the sort of mythical and non-mythical histories of King's Heath, Borsal Heath, Through Heath, that kind of thing. That's what I've been reading. You're looking really horrified well, by that whole reading. <laughs> well, sadly, no, sadly, no, no Kings in King's Heath, really. Well, only fleetingly, but still. Was there a pair in Bearwood? <laughs> Yeah, Thanks we have. City Council. Yeah, yeah. I won't be invited to their party either. <laughs> um, Stuart. Stuart. <laughs> yeah, I know it's Stuart, but I was just thinking to myself that you've already told us what you're reading. But, um, well, yeah, but there's another book I can mention, which is one I'm really enjoying called Madeline. Uh, it's Madeline Miller who wrote The Song of Achilles, which was a really great book yeah. uh, a few years ago. Her follow-up is uh, called Circe. It's actually spelt C-I-R-C-E, but. But Catherine tells me it's Cersei, and I agree. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And um, you know, it's an, it's it's kind of steeped in Homeric myth, it, but she just makes those stories really come alive and connect with the modern age. I think so. I think she's got a real skill. Mm. Fantastic. And How about I'm, you, Mike? Uh, I'm reading um, The House by Simon Lelick. Um, I love Lelick. And uh, so far, it, it, it's it's one of the you know I'm still on my murder mystery thriller thing, and uh, so far it's good. So uh, I'm giving it um, uh, 
What are my medium-sized thumbs up? Uh, just a single <laughs> thumbs up from Mike, not the two massive <laughs> Kenny Everett <laughs> thumbs that I'm I'm playing with. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we've um, come to the end of the show. Oh, you've been listening to the Brom Radio Book Show. We've really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, thanks from all of us. Thank you to... Um, thanks very much to Ruth. Uh, thank you to um, Alison for um, the, uh, the, the short story. That was mm-hmm. fantastic. I'm really looking forward to hearing more of those short stories. Uh, thanks to Andrew for doing our social media. Uh, thanks to Blake for... Uh, Keeping it all together. And please do uh, buy Stuart's um, Bird Press. Uh, the, the books are available. You can get them from. We can get them. You can get them from good bookshops. Good bookshops. And can we get them directly from you as well? You can. Yeah. There's a birdpoetrypress.com site. Right, you can buy it directly from there. And um, you can always get Mike's book from the library. But uh, <laughs> you, I, we would recommend yes. this this time purchasing Going out it. To shops. Not least because of the cover. Um, come for the cover. Stay for the content. Oh. Yeah. You can put that on the front of the paperback. Yeah. Okay. Blake uh, Woodham. That is. Um, yeah, we're just rambling now. So anyway, uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, thanks, Blake. Thanks, everybody. Uh, that was this was the Brumbaker Book Show. Thanks for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please consider joining our listener supporters. You can do this by clicking the support tab on our website or go direct to Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Brum Radio. Brum Radio shows are streamed online at the Brum Radio Mixcloud page and you can find more podcasts at brumradio.com.